Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's downtown video studios. Joining me this week, the regular Political State crew, Dale Denwalt, Justin Wingerter. In this episode, we're going to discuss the re-election bid for Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, who in seeking re-election is actually breaking a promise he made to voters that he would not go past three terms. We're going to talk about whether or not that actually matters to voters in this East Oklahoma district. But first, let's talk about the race for Oklahoma governor, starting with the Republican nominee, Kevin Stitt, who this week earned an endorsement from his runoff rival, the former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett. And guys, the endorsement from Cornett, not too surprising, maybe not that big of a deal, except that it came six weeks after the runoff election. Uh, why the delay from Cornett? Listen, if, if I was Mick Cornett, I would probably ask Kevin Stitt a number of things before I were to give the endorsement. He may have asked uh, uh, Kevin Stitt about where he stood on various issues. He may have um, earned a promise from Kevin Stitt to uh, support or not support a particular thing. Um, a, an endorsement is pretty powerful to Republicans who, uh, who supported you in the primary. Mick Cornett's supporters... Um, some of them, at least, may have been looking to whether he would ever endorse Kevin Stitt. And you know, if if I were in Stitt, uh, if I were in Cornette's camp, I, I would say, you know, try to get him to a certain place on an issue, or um, to make uh, some kind of promise before you offer that kind of uh, political power. Yeah, and you know, Cornette, you know, he ran pretty right of center in in the Republican primary in the runoff. But you know, the back of his political baseball card says that he's a moderate, mm-hmm. and so you have to imagine that there are some Cornette supporters who may be, you know, toying with the idea of supporting Edmondson, and so maybe this is key in, in that regard. But how much of this do you feel like is just, uh, you know, Cornette, you know, ringing on for maybe one more news cycle or having a little bit more power in this? Because sometimes you do see candidates who are quick to endorse when they concede. We didn't hear Cornette mention Stitt by name in his concession speech back in, in August. Mm-hmm. I, I expected Cornette to ultimately endorse uh, Kevin Stitt. Otherwise, it would just completely dog both of them throughout the campaign. Uh, somewhere, someone would always probably bring this up if it weren't voters it would be reporters and by getting this out of the way you can really look leave the primary in the past and focus on the general election how you know some people will know that you know will refer to the fact that this election got or the campaign got kind of heated and turned negative down the stretch i mean i don't know i negative it, it didn't get too negative did it yeah. i mean you know Cornette kind of beat up on state a little bit for some of the uh you know fines and, and troubles that he had with his mortgage company. Stick kind of went after Cornette as maybe not being as instrumental in Oklahoma City's uh, renaissance as he proclaims. But that, I don't know. It seemed pretty tame, all, all things said. It was. It was pretty tame. And Cornette was losing. He knew he was losing with a couple weeks out. And he went slightly negative. But by political standards, I, I don't find that to be all that negative or off-putting for voters even. The the one ad, the obvious, the famous Bullstead ad, was probably a little off-putting as our Chris Castile has argued uh, many times. So he probably went a little too negative there, negative even, even not the right term, just kind of relatively profane. And he, he missed a mark there. But 
I don't think it was all that negative. It would be really interesting to know what the true fallout of that ad was. I mean, Cornette was already trailing by most polls, by yeah. all polls, really. So it wasn't like he lost the election because of it. You know, I was talking to some people. I was visiting uh, a community in South Oklahoma, and, and one person told me that they thought the ad was kind of funny, and they made him like Cornette. But she said that you know, relatives was really turned off by the you know hint of profanity. So it's probably you know kind of depends on you know, who's viewing this ad. Um, but yeah, it, it seemed fairly tame. And these were you know, and you also kind of want as the Republican Party, you probably want your nominee to be tested a little bit. You know, really the only skeleton in the closet for Stitt, if you could even call that, is uh, you know his mortgage company, you know, getting in trouble on, on some loans, which, you know, is in the grand scheme of things, given what was happening in 2008, you know, I think it's easy to, for Stitt to maybe try to dismiss that. But, uh, you know, you want your nominee to be tested a little bit, right? Right. You know, if it, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, slings and arrows thrown in the uh, general election. Uh, a lot of national money could be spent uh, on Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, Drew Edmondson is not... He's not going to give Kevin Stitt an easy time, uh, an easy path to the governor's mansion. Uh, I think the Edmondson campus, they're going to throw everything they have um, to make sure that Oklahoma has a Democratic governor again. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if he earned his, uh, if Kevin Stitt earned his bruises in the primary uh, race, then uh, he should be able to weather the, uh, the general election the, yeah. le- the next three weeks. Yeah. Well, Stick campaign welcomed the endorsement of Cornette. One endorsement they haven't really welcomed is that of uh, current governor Mary Fallon. Uh, she endorsed him immediately after his runoff victory on Twitter. Uh, this week, I believe, is the first I've seen that she actually, uh, you know, had someone in the media get her on the record about her endorsement. She said, you know, hey, wasn't a, wasn't a, you know, it, her endorsement was, well, I'm a Republican. He's a Republican. Of course, I support him. So not the most, you know, ringing endorsement. But she said she's endorsing Kevin Stitt. The Stitt campaign says, hey, we never sought out her endorsement. Um, you know, <laughs> Fallon is not a figure that the Stitt campaign is, is going to want to be linked to. On the flip side, a lot of the Democrats' commercials against it are uh, grainy black and white photos of Kevin Stitt next to Fallon. Yeah, uh, and to be expected. You know, not many Oklahomans like Mary Fallon. Uh, or what she has done for the state of Oklahoma. Um, uh, that may temper with time, but you know, you're staring at the end of her, uh, her, four, her eight years in office, and uh, there's a lot of uh, bad memories um, and policies that, peop- that people imagine uh, are negative for the state that they can dredge up in recent memory. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it makes sense that you wouldn't really get Governor Fallon on the record like that unless a reporter asked her. That's exactly what happened uh, up in Enid. Somebody, somebody asked her, you know, what do you think of Kevin Stitt? And you know, she told him, told him the truth. You know, the, she's not going to uh, uh, duck the question, I don't think. But, and and I don't think that Kevin Stitt's team uh, are going to say anything really negative uh, or too much negative about the last eight years. That's um, sort of the the respect that you have for. Uh, someone you hope to be your predecessor. Yeah. But to say you weren't seeking the endorsement was a little cold, but that's politics. I mean, the governor is not very popular, and Kevin Stitt does not want this election to be a referendum on Mary Fallon because it puts him in jeopardy. And so it's remarkable to me sometimes how unpopular Mary Fallon is. She's less popular than, say, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who was governor when children were poisoned in Flint. I mean, it is... To me, she tried to play down the middle as governor, and she managed to anger people on all sides. And that, um, that, that's just the way I see it. 
she tried, she was obviously uh, pretty conservative herself, but went a little less right of center. And uh, I just, I mean, she wasn't conservative enough for conservatives and she wasn't moderate enough for Democrats. And, you know, for educators, she, yeah. she was, conservatives didn't like that she raised taxes for education, but obviously educators didn't feel like she was on their side either during the walkout and she had a couple um, offhand remarks that you know gave them that impression and rightfully so I think so I think she just just sort of some people can play it down the middle and everyone loves them and they're very popular some people try to play it down the middle and they miss the mark and when you do you have people on all sides who dislike you and yeah. it's remarkable to me sometimes though that you have someone with a disapproval that rating that disapproval rating that high an approval rating that low as the governor does without any major scandals. Yeah, that's true. Not very many scandals, but she has seen a pretty, overseen a pretty tumultuous time sure. you know, with the state budget. The two big things I think that she has going against her, um, one is what has happened on her watch. You know, whether or not she, you know, was the reason that, you know, budgets were slashed and school districts moved to four days a week uh, can be debated. Um, but here's the thing. I think if Fallon were to sit down with Stitt behind closed doors, and maybe she'd be like, listen, I get it. You know, you don't want to be seen with me. That's fine. It's politics. But let me tell you something, bud. If you're going to be governor of the state, of an energy-dominant state, you are going to see the ups and downs of oil. And you can't predict it, and it's going to impact everything. So on one hand, you know, she is just the victim in some ways. I mean, her supporters would probably say she's the victim of being a governor of a state that is so dependent on the price of oil. When it goes up, things are great. And it's going up right now, which is good news for whoever's going to be the next governor. You're going to not have to make as tough decisions as she had to. But when it goes down, it's horrible, and you get, you get scrutinized. Now, her opponents will say that she had a bigger hand to play in that. The second thing that she has um, going against her is she's never really been that effective at switching the narrative around her. I mean, there's no doubt that she's a successful politician. She's won every race that she's been in, and, you know, she has a lot going for her. I mean, her, you know, the scoreboard says as much. But w there have been missteps, you know, where maybe she flubs something on TV or... She's not as dominant on an issue as people want, and she just hasn't really been that effective at you know re-grabbing the microphone and, and and flipping the script. I mean, you've she's not that kind of politician. You know, no. she uh, she does a lot of work behind the scenes, um, and the you know the, you could go um, months in a in looking back uh, during her ten years as governor, you could go months without seeing her make a major policy announcement. Um, uh, that really gains traction. You know, maybe, maybe she does, but it just doesn't go anywhere. Um, and you know, that's some politicians are like that. You know, not not everyone can grab the podium and have everyone watch what they're doing. Uh, and it just so happens that that Governor Fallon, you know, she she found her her niche, um, the issues that she cared about, um, and she pushed those. She was effective in a lot of ways. You know, last week we had on uh, Adam Luck who talked about. The governor's mm -hmm. persistence in um, criminal justice reform, and just imagine—you know—look where we were when she came into office, or even four years after she came into office, and look where we are now. Yeah. And a lot of that can be attributed to her. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she, we talked about last week. Maybe she doesn't get enough credit for putting her neck on the line when it comes to criminal justice reform in such a conservative state. You know, she also was governor when we saw the largest tax increase in history, which right. Democrats were clamoring for. And you know, her opponents will say, "Well, she wasn't that instrumental for it." But she signed it. She was governor. Yeah. She gets credit for it. And as you said, Justin, not conservative enough for the most conservatives in the state because she gets attacked for signing that that tax increase as well. Yeah. So, talking about uh, sticking with the theme of endorsements, let's talk about the Democrat Drew Edmondson. Um, I'm curious, 
we were talking about this out in the newsroom earlier today. Is there a national Democratic figure um, that you feel like Drew Edmondson would want to come and endorse him? Because in the same way that Kevin Stitt opponent or the opponents of Kevin Stitt are trying to paint him as, you know, Mary Fallon-esque, the Republicans are trying to paint Drew Edmondson as a Hillary, Hillary Clinton figure, a Nancy Pelosi figure, an Obama liberal. I mean, what Democrat on the national stage would Drew Edmondson share the stage with? The only person that I can think, and I've thought about this since you asked me this a while ago, the only person that I can think uh, who might have a, a good impact, who Drew Edmondson wouldn't mind coming to Oklahoma, uh, that man is currently running for U.S. Senate in Texas. Um, Beto O'Rourke is probably one of the most prominent and, and energetic Democratic um, uh, politicians out there today. You think Oklahoma voters would want to text him coming and telling him who to vote for? He could, he could, uh, you know, bend the knee for a day. Yeah. yeah, that's a good answer. I like that yeah. one. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but realistically, I don't think that there's anyone in the national stage, in anyone from another state, who could come to Oklahoma and make uh, a big impact that that could be beneficial for Drew Edmondson down the line. Uh, the 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 roster of prominent Democrats who hold that kind of sway, uh, especially here in a conservative state like Oklahoma, is not a long list. Mm -hmm. And you know, you you may find some luck with uh, maybe some conservative senators because there are some out there or governors uh, of other conservative states, but there's really no star power with those people. Yeah. For, for Democrats in Oklahoma, if you're running for statewide office, this is not this is not a state where it's really a turnout game. I mean, it's not about just getting you know, you know, a, a bunch of Democrats to turn out and you win the election. You're going to need some independents. You're probably going to need some Republicans to go your way. And and Edmondson is you know probably thinking you know I probably have some Republicans that are on the fence. They're saying you know what I'm not happy with how things have gone. Uh, you know I'm not a flag wearing Repu waving Republican, but I am a registered Republican. But maybe I'm willing to give someone like Drew Edmondson a chance. And you're right, linking him to some of those national uh, Democratic figures, you know, may spook some of those voters. Which is probably why the national Republicans who are spending money in this race are are trying to connect him with the likes of Pelosi and Clinton. Which is which is kind of absurd in a way because there's there's not much about their policies and positions that are similar. It's President Obama is more popular now than when he left office, and he will probably gain some popularity. Um, it's still probably too young for or too early for Obama to come out to, to Oklahoma and be helpful to a Democrat. Um, and if you go back before that, I'm, I'm just thinking of Democratic presidents. I mean, the Clintons, Bill Clinton, obviously would be linked to his wife, who's still unpopular, and the Clintons generally not very popular. Maybe Jimmy Carter. Like I don't know if you'd have to go that far back. Yeah. And, I, and Carter is not on the campaign trail, as far as I know. But that that would be my only guess. Or you go someone like with Dale mentioned, and you go with like a young, or even just a, a liberal um, populist sort of uh, person who's going to get people riled up and maybe improve turnout. Um, yeah. But you may lose some people there too. So it's they're one of the two strategies, I guess, uh, you could go with, but not a lot are coming to mind. I have not given this thought yeah. like you two have before we came in. And, and, and you don't have to necessarily go for a politician. You could go for someone who is prominent in the public eye, um, you know, a culture, cultural pop star, so to speak, who uh, is has seemingly has conservative credentials uh, with their background or maybe their job or something. And um, that someone may, may, may be surprised. Yeah, Taylor Swift, bring her, bring her down, Swift, yeah. have a concert. Uh, that so pe people may be surprised that they would support uh, a Democrat or may at least get some people talking about it. 
There'll be some OU quarterback out yeah, there that they sure. can bring in. I, you know, you asked about uh, you know Massachusetts uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's you know seems to be running for president. She made a swing through Oklahoma a few weeks ago, and you asked me if she mentioned Edmondson by name, and I could be wrong. But look, thinking back on it, I don't believe that she did. And so she and she wasn't here to stump for candidates particularly. I mean, she was talking up the teachers that were running for office and, and trying to encourage Democrats to get out the vote. But even she, um, I don't believe, mentioned Edmondson by name. And if she did, she didn't spend much time talking about him. I also wonder if there's a you know an Oklahoma Democratic figure that would really be instrumental. And I don't think that there is. Not that, I mean, Edmondson will take the endorsement of any Oklahoma Democrat that wants to give it to him. But we've talked about before how the Democratic Party in Oklahoma has become much more liberal and progressive than in years past. It's interesting that you have their nominee for governor a somewhat pretty moderate Democrat, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, hey, that makes sense because the strategy to win a statewide race is going to have a moderate Democrat. But Edmondson is not necessarily cut from the same mold as the the core of the Democratic Party, at least in the House and the Senate, right? That's right. I think, although you mentioned that, and, and Scott Inman um, may be one of his best hopes to go out and stump for him, if, if Scott Inman wants to do that again. You yeah. know, Inman was in the race, uh, unexpectedly and surprisingly somewhat withdrew himself from the race and said that um, he was going to kind of step away from being in the legislature for a minute. Um, but uh, it seems like... Inman's trying to get back into the public eye. He reactivated his Twitter account. He's talking to folks. Uh, so he may be a, a viable option to help Drew Edmondson um, get his message out. Um, and uh, I, I think if you, if you kind of look back at who in the Democratic Party right now has the kind of uh, ability to talk to people and mm -hmm. to convince them uh, to do certain things like go out and vote for your candidate, you know, Scott Edmund may be your guy. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you would welcome uh, his his work on the campaign trail. Uh, well, it's going to be interesting. We've got a few weeks left before that November. Well, actually, we got more than that um, before that November sixth election. Um, and right now, the polls show that's close. Uh, it's not a squeaker by any means. Stitt is in the lead, but most polls show you know anywhere to a, a three point to six point lead for Stitt. Um, and that's with some swinging distance for Edmondson, mm -hmm. um, and more so than we've seen from a Democratic candidate at least the last cycle or two. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to, to see how that shapes out, and uh, we'll continue to talk about the governor's race. Let's switch gears to uh, races for Congress, particularly in District 3, um, Eastern Oklahoma. Two, sorry, two. That's your, that's your world. Uh, Mark Way Mullins uh, running for re-election had promised that he was only going to serve for three terms. Uh, you know, we see some sometimes that uh, lawmakers will, will pledge not to stay. You know, they want to kind of say, hey, I'm not a career politician, so I'll, I'll cap my time at this. But he's seeking a, a, a fourth term, um, breaking a promise. Uh, Justin, do voters seem to care? Yeah, it's not news that he did this. It was news last year. He did it on 4th of July, 2017. He did this, um, he made this announcement. It was talk of uh, the eastern Oklahoma political world for a, a couple weeks there, you know. Republicans lined up to challenge him. There were questions about how, who would challenge him. Tom Coburn, who's never, hasn't cared for Mullen for quite some time, frankly, um, vowed to, you know, help whoever uh, would beat Mark Wayne Mullen. It seemed like it would be a hot topic. So I checked back 15 months later, um, as we are now 25 days away from the election, and uh, I don't know. It just seemed, it hasn't seemed to make much of a difference. Mullen beat three challengers in the June primary outright at 54% of the vote. Um, so he didn't have to face anyone in a, par in a 
runoff that could have been precarious or perilous. So instead, he just scoots right to a, a, a general election where he is heavily favored because it's a heavily Republican district. So it hasn't really seemed to bog him down at all. What is a broken promise? When we talk sometimes about people hate Congress, but they like their congressmen, people view Congress sometimes as dishonest and disloyal and will reelect someone who did break a promise, and he will admit that. And uh, he'll, he'll just tell you it was a mistake when he promised the first time he was running that he would uh, limit himself to three terms. He's now running for a fourth. And so it just it doesn't seem to matter, and it won't matter, in my opinion, until someone comes with a lot of money. If you have a million or two million to spend, to hammer Mullen you know, in the mailboxes and on TV and on radio, day after day over mm -hmm. this and remind voters time and time again that he broke a promise, it could be really effective. I think it still has to be in a primary because I, that district is so overwhelmingly Republican now. Um, but I think you could, someone could be effective with that, but no one has the money, at least this year, to, uh, to really give them heck about it. Yeah. Well, first off, what's up with Oklahomans uh, betraying our trust with July 4th announcements? We saw that from uh, Kevin Durant and now Mark Wayne Mullins announcing he's breaking that <laughs> promise last year. But, you know, you had a story in today's Oklahoma about this uh, and a couple of things I wanted to mention. You talk about just how hard it is to beat him. And, and right now for voters, the, the thing they most seem to be concerned with is sending back uh, to Congress a, a staunch Trump supporter. A defender, yeah. and right now in a lot of congressional races, that's kind of the, the the wedge issue: is where do you stand on Trump? In Eastern Oklahoma, uh, many voters are are staunch supporters of the president, and they want a congressman to go back uh, who's going to defend the president, especially if they think that the Democrats may retake the House and, and push for impeachment. And Mark Mark Mullins, Mullins is a is a Trump supporter. Yes, uh, no surprise. Uh, Donald Trump sucking the oxygen, sucking every other issue. <laughs> out of this uh, campaign and make it about him. And Mullen has been just about arguably the most staunch and adamant defender of the president um, the last year or so since President Trump has been in office. He has clearly seen that as uh, uh, his avenue and I think he truly does trust and you know agree with the president. And so he uh, that's been his avenue and I think he's pretty safe because of it. I, I talked to Jaron Jackson, his, uh, his top primary opponent, who Coburn and others really thought could give him a good run, and he pretty much told me this, this election was about Donald Trump, and Mullen, uh, you can't get to the right of him when it comes to supporting Trump. He's as adamant as anybody. Yeah. But, Another thing you mentioned in your story is just how kind of hard it is to campaign in this district, and I, and I was thinking about that more after I read it in your article today. That may, this may be one of the hardest districts, congressional districts in Oklahoma to campaign if you're a newcomer to challenge an incumbent with name recognition. I Dale's mean, if, home district. So. Yeah, I mean, you've got, I mean, if you're in the Oklahoma City or Tulsa, you've got those television markets. I mean, in Oklahoma City in the 5th District, you've got far less ground to cover. I mean, a lot of people still, a lot of doors to knock, but you can get an army and concentrate them. I mean, East Oklahoma, uh, and that, that kind of southeast part of the state, um, you know, that's not easy terrain, both physically and, and metaphysically, to, to, to go over. Um, and you don't have the kind of, like, established towns like you do in western Oklahoma with their, you know, with, the, with newspapers that are, you know, decently still read in those communities. I mean, it just seems like it's a hard place maybe to run for office if you're taking on an incumbent. Yeah, eastern Oklahoma is a weird place. Mm -hmm. um, the, if there, there aren't a whole lot of people there. I mean, certainly more people than in Western Oklahoma. You know, Frank Lucas's district is absolutely massive, and I would hate to have to campaign there. But you know, 
Eastern Oklahoma is, is just the same. You know, you have the more populated areas, kind of the communities around uh, Tulsa, uh, you know, Muskogee area, Tahlequah, where I'm from. Um, but you, you go further south and you, and you start seeing, uh, you start driving for 30 minutes before you get to the next town. Uh, and the, the politics of the area are really strange as well. Yeah. Uh, for years, Democrats were, uh, it was, probably 90% Democrat. I'm just throwing the number out. It's probably wrong. But there's so many Democrats there. Democrat, right. Yeah. Uh, and yet, they elected Republican candidates. Because Republicans were conservative. These voters were conservative. Uh, but yet, there was still a, pervade, a, a pervasive uh, belief that uh, you wouldn't have a say in local elections unless you were a Democrat. Because yeah. all of the local candidates uh, were running as Democrats. Uh, it started to shift. It's a shift that's been going on for 10 or 15 years. Um, and I think it's more pronounced now that people are uh, either re-registering uh, mm -hmm. to with a party that more closely aligns with their views. The older uh, Democrats are dying, um, and then new people coming onto the voter rolls uh, are probably going to be Trump supporters and uh, would naturally uh, uh, register with a party that they agree with. Yeah. Well, and it's also, and it makes sense because of where it's geographically located, but it's also the part of the state that's probably most similar uh, to the American South. Sure. Um, and kind of that Dixie area. It's and called Dixie, Little Dixie. Little Dixie. We've seen that transition happen in other southern states. You know, it's also when you talk about, you know, Democrats who voted for Trump in the last election, and there were pockets where that happened in a lot of the Rust Belt states, you saw that. Um, this is probably the part of the state where you saw that as well. Democrats that were already changing their political views to be more conservative, but also Democrats that have been a lot more concerned with the economy and the loss of jobs and manufacturing and other things and not really concerned with social issues and those kind of things. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, kind of a weird uh, place politically. It's supposed to be a very beautiful place also this time of year. Yeah, yeah. So. The, really, the, it's, there aren't many economies in eastern Oklahoma, uh, and tourism is probably one of the main ones. And uh, so, yeah, you're right. Very poor areas, some of the poorest parts of the state, um, and not a lot of money to go around. So the, the disaffected, um, middle to low class sort of uh, blue-collar kind of person is exactly who supports Trump, and that's exactly who lives in eastern Oklahoma. Yeah. And then one last thought on this uh, this congressional race. You, you mentioned that uh, Coburn, a former U.S. senator, had come out against Mark Wayne Mullins pretty heavily, and it didn't seem to do any good. This was also a year that Coburn, you know, pushed a back, you know, an effort to repeal the tax increases the legislature passed for teacher pay raises this spring. And that wasn't successful. Is this the year where Coburn's kind of political capital, his political relevancy is, is officially kind of no more? I could take that farther. He endorsed uh, Roy Moore in Alabama. He uh, has made some other endorsements that didn't quite pan out. He is uh, hoping to stay in the political arena. He is in many ways staying in the political arena. Um, but when you're not, when you've been out of office for a while, that, that can start to wane. And if you get a few endorsements wrong or people feel like you're not going to be on the winning side much, now, he's always been an ideologue, and he still is. Mm -hmm. He's a over. He's a staunch ideologue. He will go the way that uh, his, he truly believes is right, even if that means endorsing a candidate. He will lose overwhelmingly to an establishment or an incumbent, someone like that. So it, he is who he is, and he uh, is not going to stop being that anytime soon. But he had some endorsements and some um, the the anti-tax effort that 
fell way short, frankly. Yeah, well, the political times, they are changing, and that's evident in the fact that the majority of the legislature this year is going to be in office for fewer than two years. Many of this will be their first term. And, you know, we may have a, a governor and, and Kevin Stitt, who many Republicans didn't even know about a year or two ago, and is now going to be leading the party. So it's going to be interesting to see how that transformation continues. Real quick, before we end this week's episode, Dale, uh, we haven't really talked about medical marijuana Lately, things seem like they're going along smoothly for the most part, but lawmakers continue to meet uh, this uh, bipartisan uh, work session. They met again this week. Anything new on that front? Right, so they, they essentially ended the bulk of their, their work this last week. They're, they're still going to keep meeting uh, and keep the, the committee, uh, the working group, open. Uh, but what happened this last week is they, they heard some, some, the, some the, the final piece that they were wanting to learn, which is banking regulations, and they didn't really good news. Um, banks are still unsure what to do. The associations are telling the banks, don't get into this business uh, because it's, on, it's still illegal on a federal level, and banks have to um, insure uh, their money and, and use the Federal Reserve to move money around. And when you get tied into that system, uh, you have to start filing reports on suspicious activity and uh, it can look bad, uh, especially to prosecutors, if uh, drug money essentially is being funneled through your bank. Uh, and uh, there, there aren't a whole lot of uh, recourse for banks to be able to handle money from, uh, from dispensaries and grow operations and uh, production uh, uh, facilities, things like that. Um, right now, the U.S., uh, the federal budget says that there won't be any money going to prosecution of uh, of banks that uh, in states where marijuana is legal, um, but that could change. You know, we it's a continuing resolution that expires in December, and we could get something else. Uh, so there's nothing really on the books that will protect banks in the long term. So there, it's really hesitant. The, the other big thing that happened on Wednesday, and really the committee's only action so far, is to recommend a set of testing and labeling rules. Um, and this is going to be when you when someone goes to a dispensary to buy uh, you know, a bag of medical marijuana uh, plant or um, a, uh, an edible or whatever, uh, it's going to have a label on it and it's going to be tested. However, um, because it's been so long uh, to get these rules into place, um, we're probably going to see product on the shelves that uh, has no guarantee that it's been tested in a way that uh, uh, that re state regulators want it to be, yeah. and you know that that could pose a problem. You know, you could have um, stuff on uh, marijuana on the shelf that may have some residue uh, from pesticides mm -hmm. or unwanted concentrations of certain chemicals in uh, in marijuana. A lot of acronyms and words that I don't understand, um, but uh, the, that could give you an un unexpected result if you were to take it. And this would include like THC levels as that's well? That's right. Yeah, and that's important because if you go and you're not getting what you think you're getting and, and you, you know, maybe the dosage is a lot lower than, you, than the label says and, and you want to double it, that could be a, kind of a dangerous thing for some people. That's right, and you know, th there will be, there are companies that are going to be self-regulating and, and sending their stuff off to test anyway, uh, but th there is the worry that, you know, the state hasn't had its final say yet and the health officials in the state uh, still haven't voted on it. Their next meeting is, is in December. Uh, people I've talked to expect there to be um, marijuana on the shelves ready to buy in November. 
Yeah. Well, that law is well underway, but still a lot of uh, T's to cross and, and I's to dot, and that'll be one of the big things that the legislature, we assume, is going to take up right. uh, when they reconvene early next year. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State. You can find this and every episode on your favorite podcasting app, also on the Oklahomans YouTube channel. With Justin and Dale, I'm Ben. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week for another episode of Political State.